Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Jens Nelson. And my name is Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss, investigate, have fun with, talk about, and just explore theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So today, <laughs> uh, let's hope this one goes a little bit better, Lucas. So <laughs> for, for those that don't quite know what we're referring to, uh, this episode, we actually recorded in full. It was like an hour and 15 minutes last weekend. It was meant to drop two days later on Tuesday. But on Monday night at 9.30 p.m., when I went to go edit it, the audio was completely compromised. It, it was choppy. I, it sounded like I had an echo on. Also, for some reason, I it didn't record the entirety of my talking, but it got all of Lucas's. So, like, it was just literally unusable. Um, so, like, we had teased the, el- uh, the album. <laughs> we had teased the, the episode on Monday. And so we were really sorry that we couldn't release this episode on Tuesday. We ended up re-releasing an old one. Um, but this was a conversation that we really enjoyed, one that I think is pretty important. Uh, so we thought we would re-record it. Uh, because of the Holy Saturday episode last week, and because it corresponded with Holy Week and Holy Saturday, we wanted to keep that in, in kind of with that theme. Um, so we decided to re-record this, um, and now give it to you. So this is actually going to come out in a week or so. Um, We're just getting a couple episodes ahead. Uh, So with that out of the way, I want to say I'm actually glad. I'm actually kind of glad that we had the episode problems. Uh, Because all day Monday, I was sort of like, not feeling super great about how it went down. And it's just, it's mainly because, as we're going to see, I approached this conversation differently than Lucas approached it. So as we talk about limited atonement, Lucas defined what the historic doctrine, the the capital R reformed, capital C Calvinist doctrine of limited atonement means. Um, I approached it more like, well, I have some problems with the idea of um, a limited atonement. So here's what I think limited atonement should mean, which it, it was still a good conversation. I think it was still fruitful, but it wasn't the conversation we wanted to have. And so I think this is going to be a much better conversation to listen to. It'll be more cohesive. There will be less clarifying of what certain people mean. And I think it'll just be better. So without any further ado, we're going to jump back in. We're going to talk about limited atonement. And we're going to start, I think, with Lucas, where we started last time, where you basically define the term. Like, So let's let's start there. Yeah, that's definitely... Uh, whether it's round one or round two, <laughs> I think uh, that's the best place to start. Um, pretty much with anything, you know, we saw there was a lot of there's a lot of complexity and nuance with words like hell and the place of the dead when we talked last week about uh, the, the the doctrine of Christ's descent. And I think that it's a good, you know, not every term is as complex as hell is when we're speaking about um, biblical theological doctrines, but. Um, or historical events or historical doctrines. However, um, what is, you know, always important is that we understand what we're what we're saying, or else we're going to have, like you said, two different conversations, which, you know, for having two different approaches, I still think we had a great conversation. But a lot of the times when you have two different approaches, you end up not really having a conversation at all, because you're just 
talking past each other. Um, and that's true whether or not uh, you're agreeing or disagreeing. And it's just really important when you're trying to explore whether or not something is true, you have to get understand what we're talking about, right? So to, to define the doctrine of limited atonement, I have here um, quotes and definitions taken from a variety of sources. And I deliberately chose um, for every source except for one of these, um, it comes from, a, from something written by someone who holds to the doctrine of limited atonement. Um, and I deliberately did that to make sure I wasn't getting some kind of caricature by somebody who disagrees and is trying to make it sound dumb or silly or nonsensical or whatever. I wanted to get as, as clear an understanding as possible, so I got as many definitions as I could find uh, with the sources available to me um, from the perspective of those who are trying to clearly articulate something that they believe in and not just characterize, caricaturize something they disagree with. So that being said, um, I will start with the, the source written by somebody who disagrees with this doctrine. Um, this quote comes from Roger Olson's uh, historical theological uh, study called The Story of Christian Theology, um, which is basically just an intro to church history. It's a, it's a really good book. It's got some issues, but it's really good. Um, and this is what he says. Uh, Beza and most other Calvinists also deduced the doctrine of limited atonement, that Christ died only for the elect and not for the reprobate, from the doctrine of God's providence and electing decrees. That deduction, though logical, cannot be found in Calvin himself. So I like this because it's putting it in its historical context. We're talking about Beza. We're talking about the generations following Calvin and the Reformation. We're talking about those who are following in his footsteps. Um, we're also talking about something that is not explicitly actually in Calvin, uh, which I think is a common misconception along with devil predestination, that Calvin doesn't teach tulip. <laughs> Calvin doesn't teach limited atonement. Uh would he agree with it? I don't know. I, I haven't talked to him. But um, the point being, this doctrine, you know, has a certain historical context that Olson kind of gives here. And then he also gives a clear, you know, short definition. Christ died only for the elect and not for the reprobate. So that's one way of wording the definition. Moving on to a couple of quotes from Lorraine Bettner's fairly well-known, I think, I think usually considered kind of a classic work, um, the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. Um, he, he gives something in his own words and then also quotes uh, some other people, and I want to read both of these. So the first quote, quote, Arminians hold that Christ died for all men alike, while Calvinists hold that in the intention and secret plan of God, Christ died for the elect only. Um, and the second quote, Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. His death was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. So a couple of things to highlight here. Uh, one, just real short and, and simple. Again, very clear. Christ died for the elect only. Uh, it was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. So we have this very clear, I think, easy to understand focus that... Um, what we're talking about here is the idea that Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only, as they say. Um, but also a couple of things that, that kind of jump out, or, or really just one other thing that, that jumps out here that I want to highlight. This is a reformed debate. 
right? This is a reformed doctrine. This is not a article of the Nicene Creed, <laughs> either way. This is not something that if you talk to an Eastern Orthodox Christian, they're probably even going to understand what you're talking about. This is something that, as Lorraine Bettner says, Arminians and Calvinists argue about. And that's not to say that that means we can ignore it, you know, for those of us who don't consider ourselves Reformed or Arminian or Calvinist. I, I'm not saying that means this is an irrelevant conversation. It's not. Um, but what I am saying is that, again, historical context is important. Um, in American evangelical Christianity, um, I know my experience for a long time, I, I thought that all of Christian history and all the different churches in the world were more or less having the same conversations that I was having. But that's just not true. Arminians and Calvinists are two flavors of what we can consider Reformed Christianity. Um, you know, if we're going to say like capital R Reformed, then Arminians probably wouldn't hold themselves to be Reformed. And, and you know, think those terms have kind of gotten a little more complicated as the centuries have gone on. We could but say Reformation. Ref certainly Reformation. Certainly right. Reformation. And even more specific than Reformation. Um, you know, but but certainly, certainly, this is a Reformation debate. This is a, this is a, um, a cer certain Christians are having this debate. Um, and certain Christians aren't. Again, that's not to diminish the importance of the debate or to make us feel like this is some kind of obscure side thing. This is a very important conversation because this is a doctrine about the atonement. You know, like you don't really get much more important than Christ saving people. Um, but I do want to just kind of point that out. It's not going to, I don't think, be a big part of our conversation here today. It's more just it comes out in this statement by Bettner, and I think it's relevant. Um, but moving on, um, we quote Robert Lethem's systematic theology a lot on this podcast. It's, it's a really good, accessible, one-volume systematic theology. Um, as far as systematic theologies go, it's both good and accessible, <laughs> unlike some that are either accessible and not good or good but not accessible. Um, but he has a quote talking about limited atonement. Christ died with the purpose of making full and effective atonement for all his people who had been chosen to salvation from before the foundation of the world. Its saving purpose, so it meaning Christ's death, its saving purpose is directed to the elect. So that, again, this idea is just coming back, coming back. Um, this is uh, Kevin DeYoung, who's a pretty popular, reformed, evangelical pastor, writer. Um, he has a, a brief little article on the Gospel Coalition called Theological Primer, Limited Atonement. Um, and I like this, this article and definition because it's really short. The article is like 500 words, um, and it's just really easily accessible online um, on the Gospel Coalition. And I just feel like you don't get much more relevant and accessible than a short gospel coalition article you know just in terms of far reach so i think it's helpful to kind of get this more popular level explanation of it um so quoting kevin DeYoung, as ursinus explains in his commentary on the heidelberg catechism christ's death was for everyone quote as it respects the sufficiency of satisfaction with which he made but not as it respects the application thereof in other words the death of Christ was sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world.
but it was God's will that it should effectively redeem those and only those who were chosen from eternity and given to Christ by the Father. Particular redemption, which is another name for the doctrine of limited atonement, we'll get to that in a second, is often considered a more favorable term because the point of the doctrine is not to limit the mercy of God, but to make clear that Jesus did not die in the place of every sinner on the earth, but for his particular people. So there's a negative and a positive side. Positively, Jesus died for his particular people, those chosen in eternity past. On the negative side, he did not die in the place of every sinner on the earth, right? And where all of these definitions are really coming from is in the Synod of Dort in the early 1600s, where basically the, the in uh, Holland, in the Netherlands, um, there's a synod to evaluate the controversies that erupted over the theology and the teachings of Jacob Arminius um, within the Reformed Church. And again, the reason I say that the Arminian-Calvinism debate is a Reformed debate is because Jacob Arminius was a Reformed pastor in the Dutch Reformed Church. That's why the Reformed had this synod. And all the Reformed Christians, Geneva and, and Holland and the Church of England and um, Switzerland, they all they came to this synod, right? It, it wasn't a synod where Roman Catholics and Lutherans were coming because they weren't having this debate. You know what I mean? Anyway, in the canons of Dort from the Synod of Dort, where this is where the Synod of Dort, the canons are where we get tulip, right? Um, they were they're they're not arranged in that order or with that acronym. That came later as a way for in English to kind of just categorize them in a way that's memorable. But those five doctrines, you know, the L being limited atonement, they come from Dort. Um, so to go straight to the source, uh, the, in the canons of Dort, in the second main point of doctrine, Article 8, we have this quote. It was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given him by the Father. So, the new covenant, which is which is affected by the blood of the cross that, that Christ uh, pours out for the salvation of all those who believe, that is for all those and only those who were chosen. In other words, the elect, right? Um, this is not a debate over election. Um, that's a much longer conversation onto what... Uh, the Bible is talking about when it talks about election, but but that's whatever we want to say about that. That's not what we're speaking of here. But what we're talking about is the elect. You know, whatever that category is, they're the ones who Christ died for. Um, not every sinner on earth, as Kevin DeYoung said. Not everybody. So I don't think it's unfair to say, on the basis of all of these sources that go back from Dort to Gospel Coalition and everything in between. Um, if I was going to give my, in my own words, what limited atonement is as a doctrine that has been historically and, and, and today is taught, not by every Christian, but by many Christians, Christians who love the Lord, who are faithful. I'm not <laughs> trying to call this heresy or anything like that, because um, it's not. But um, the doctrine of limited atonement is that Christ died only for the elect. You know, I say that's my own words, but really I'm just kind of repeating um, some of the definitions I've already read because I don't think you can get much more straightforward 
than that phrase. Christ died only for the elect, right? And however we want to evaluate that, and, and we'll kind of get into that, we'll, especially um, in terms of, of bi- relevant biblical texts that are, that are going to be like the, the next place to go once we kind of have this definition under our belts. Um, I, I, I think we, we, we just, if, if we're not aware of that, we need to just be aware that that's what this doctrine is. And if we are aware of that, great, whatever. But we just need to be on the same page when we're talking about, just like we'd say, what is the Trinity? What does it mean to believe in the hypostatic union? What does it mean to believe in the descent of Christ, right? Um, the descent of Christ doesn't mean he goes and kills a bunch of demons in hell on Saturday, right? Like, you could believe that, but that's not believing in the doctrine of Christ's descent, right? Um, and so when we're talking about limited atonement, what is limited atonement? It's the the doctrine that Christ died only for the elect. Um, not because he was too weak to die for everybody. His death was sufficient for all the sins of all the people in the world. Um, but he did not die for every individual sinner, he died for and to save every single one of the elect, right? Um, I hope that makes sense. Um, and I, yeah. I, I think that that's a solid way, at least, at least as a first step to, to sort of defining what we're talking about. I, I think that that gives us some good, uh, a good foundation to, to build off of. Um, so I don't know if, if there's anything either that I've missed or just, uh, or, you know, responses or questions to any of this particular quotes or, or just any thoughts that you have as far as like this sort of foundational section of, of definition goes. Yeah. So just another peek behind the curtain, the, the original time, the first time that we recorded this episode, I had pushed back kind of right away with what Lucas had to say. Um, because in my mind, I've often struggled with limited atonement as it's taught in the reformed Calvinistic camp. Um, simply because it is hard to square with some of the, I guess, some of the biblical texts we're about to talk about. Like, you either have to do some hermeneutical gymnastics or take words to mean something that they might not mean in its most basic understanding. So, like, I've had a difficult time with understanding exactly what all this means, but what we have to at least acknowledge regardless of where we fall on this issue, is that there are only a certain number of people, you might call them the elect, you might call them the bride, you might call them the church. The reality is, is that if we take the whole teaching of scripture, if we take the descent, for example, as I said last week, the descent isn't a liberation of everybody in Sheol. It's a liberation of those who were in the um, upper tier, the people who were in the uh, Abraham's bosom, the compartment where the righteous dwelt. So even there, the unrighteous remains and will remain until the end of times. So obviously, the atonement is not a universal atonement. That, so whatever we say about it, and that this is the, the thing about Calvinism, the thing about especially tulip within Calvinism, is that it's incredibly logical. Um, there's a lot of logic to it, meaning like, so this step to this step, then then thus this step, and then thus this step, and then this step. It's there. There are, I think, in some ways, a lot of ways to give biblical evidence. Obviously, people like R.C. Sproul and Kevin DeYoung and some of these other people that you've mentioned, they're not just like pulling this out of thin air. They they're trying to <laughs> right. pull it from scripture. Yeah. They might not understand the scripture correctly, or maybe they do. Um, the, the reality is, as as humans, 
as we try to understand the mysterious, infinite um, foreknowledge of God, is we're just going to struggle. That's like the reality that I think we have to acknowledge, is that there are some things that we simply cannot comprehend because we are not God. Sure. Uh, that part yeah. of his will maybe hasn't been revealed to us. That doesn't mean we don't try. That doesn't mean scripture doesn't teach certain things. Um, but there is a complexity in understanding that, let's just say that Christ did die for the sins of the entire world, every single person ever, but not every single person will be in glory. So from step one to the end, or what, what you know, from that step saying Christ died for everybody, to then get to glory and to not have a universal salvation, something transpired in that time. And so that's where mm -hmm. logically for reformed people, because of some of the other conclusions they have, they logically deduce and that, you know, they would say from scripture deduce that, um, you know, thus, even if his death is sufficient for everybody, let's say that, he, you know, it's sufficient, but it, it only is effective for those who are a part of the church or a part of the elect, however you want to refer to that body that will be in glory forever. And yeah. so as somebody who is in the reformed-ish camp, as somebody who is Calvinistic-ish, like personally, I have Calvinian. a... Calvinian, sure. I have, I have a, <laughs> I have a tattoo of Calvin's face on my forearm. Um, what that means means something to me specifically. A graven image, right? A graven no, image. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, obviously, I'm somebody who's in this camp, but I have often struggled mightily on this point. I can affirm the. I mean, I don't even like using tulip. I think it's a really bad acronym. Yeah. It's not. It's not yeah. helpful because, like we said, it's it's <laughs> describing things in a negative as opposed to the positive, so limited atonement as opposed to particular redemption um, and so on and so forth. Like, yeah, I think people are sinful. Yeah, I think... Um, um, God elects. On God elects, right. Basis. Yes, yeah. I, th I think that, you know, the um, God's grace is irresistible, the, that we will not fall away. Like, I think some of those things are true, but on limited atonement, especially if, as Lucas has defined it, if that is in fact true, if we're accurately representing the Reformed faith, I have struggled to say that Christ on the cross died only for the sins of the elect because of certain biblical texts. There are other texts to me that seem to indicate that he did die for his, just his people. Um, and as we get into, I mean, I can just mention a few real quick. Um, I'm sorry, I had to pull up my document here. So, um, Let's see. Uh, okay. So Matthew one twenty one. she will give birth to a son, speaking of Mary, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So a specific people he's saving. Um, John 10, 14 through 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Doesn't lay it down for the sheep and the goats. Mm -hmm. uh, he lays it down for the sheep. Uh, Hebrews seven twenty five. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. So he, he saves those who come to God through Christ. So, you know, obviously we know he only saves, I mean, I, only a select group of people are in glory forever. It's not, I, I'm not somebody who affirms universal salvation. Um, you know, elsewhere in, uh, Mark, for example, Mark 10, 45, uh, Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Not for everybody, not for all, but a ransom for many. So like there are texts 
that to me indicates some sort of particular redemption, some sort of particular group of people that Christ comes to die for. Um, I know Lucas has a few texts that he wants to bring up um, where it seems like Christ is dying for the world. Uh, Behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Well, what does the world mean? That's that's what a lot of people will debate over. Um, But I think, you know... (laughs) This is a this is a difficult conversation. It's one that hasn't been had throughout all of church history. Um, it, like you said, it's one that is very reformed, one that is very um, specific to a select type and group of people. Um, but to me, the way that I see it, unless you are a universalist, so unless you believe that everybody is going to be in glory, everyone believes that the atonement is limited in some way. So it may be limited in its sufficiency, in its efficiency, or in its application, but it's limited in some way because if Christ died for the sins of the world, and if the world means all people of all times, then the atonement is limited in its efficiency. It's only efficient to to accomplish the salvation of a particular group of people, even if sufficiently it was for everybody. Like, you kind of get what I'm saying. And so some of the ways that Lucas and I, I don't want to say butted heads, but where we had just some disagreement last time was just that, like, that's how I approached this conversation was like, I don't think that's what limited atonement means, Lucas. And Lucas is like, well, that's, I'm just defining limited atonement. Like it's defined in the reformed confessions and in these different articles. And I'm like, okay, you're right. So that's maybe how the reformed talk about it, but that's not how I'm talking about it. And so like, like he said, maybe we talked past each other a little bit. We did have a fruitful conversation. Um, but I think this one, like I said, will go a much better direction because we're more on the same page now. And as I've thought about this over the course of the week, I have really wrestled with like, okay, if, if, the, if Jesus died for all people, if he died for the sins of the entire world, what is it that happens in between that, like Good Friday? What happens between Good Friday and the, the last days when Jesus returns? What is it that makes it so that not everybody is in glory? And maybe that maybe we don't have answers to that today. I don't I don't know, Lucas, if you have any, um, but perhaps we explore this conversation a little bit more, giving more um, scripture texts and and so forth. So, what else do you want to add here? Yeah, I think that's that's good, very good stuff to sort of keep in keep in mind. And um, I do think that there is for any Christian, <laughs> there's there's wrestling to do with sin and redemption and salvation um and hopefully we can do some of that wrestling today and 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 talk through a little bit so um a couple of 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 biblical passages that that you haven't referenced i don't want to just blow past the ones you did um but i do want to bring up um some other ones so the first one i want to do which is kind of what sparked my idea to to have this episode in the first place is uh romans 5 17 through 19. I'll just read it and then kind of give some thoughts. So, if by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through 
Just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So what I want to point out here is, in verses 18 and 19, there is, in my mind, an absolutely unmistakable (laughs) symmetry and parallelism between the sin and condemnation of Adam and the uh, redemption, or we can say atonement, or, or whatever we want to say, forgiveness and um, salvation uh, of Christ, right? The, the, the old, this, is, this is the passage in Romans where we're talking about uh, Christ as the new Adam, the, the old Adam and the new Adam, and Paul's kind of comparing here, I think, the, the actions and the results of the old Adam with the actions and the results of the new Adam, right? So we have one trespass leading to condemnation for everyone. One righteous act leading to justification for everyone. One man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. One man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So the reason I think this parallelism is so important to point out is there's a connection. There's a, like I said before, a symmetry but in the way that Paul is speaking here about how Adam's work and Christ's work impact us as, as people, right? We are not Adam, we are not Christ, but we are impacted personally as, as, as humans and as individuals by their work, right? So first, it says that, that Adam's, the impact of Adam's work is condemnation, and the impact of, of Christ's work is justification, And then in verse 19, the impact of Adam's work is uh, people being made sinners, and the impact of Christ's work is people being made righteous. And what's interesting is in verse 18, we have everyone and everyone. Adam's work condemns everyone. Christ's work justifies leading to life everyone. And then in 19, we have many and many, right? So clearly, you look at verse 18 by itself, There is condemnation for everyone through Adam, and there is justification leading to life for everyone through Christ. Okay, that's universal salvation. We're done. That's easy. Adam, you know, through original sin, Adam condemns us. Through Christ's uh, salvation, we're all saved. It's the same thing. We were all condemned. Now we're all saved. Easy peasy. Well, you know, without hashing out why, just suffice it to say, neither of us... (laughs) Uh, would confess universal salvation on the basis of the rest of scripture um, for various reasons. <laughs> um, but so there's something going on here that's that's like, well, I mean, but not every, you know, yeah, everyone was condemned in Adam. I think we don't have any problem confessing that. But not everyone was justified leading to life, right? Because we know through experience and through scripture that some people um, are not in glory, like you said. Um, okay. Well, if you take verse 19 by itself, it says that many were made sinners and then many will be made righteous. And it's like, okay, yeah, many will be made righteous. Yeah, many people will be saved and have been saved. The church, you know, billions of people throughout history have been Christians. They've been made righteous. Great, easy. But I don't want to confess that only many people were made sinners because... I think it's pretty obvious through scripture and through experience that all people are sinners, right? So there's this symmetry. And it's interesting that he doesn't say everyone every time 
or many every time. He says both everyone and many. So we don't kind of get off the hook on either side, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm not saying that only some people are sinners. And I'm not saying that every individual person will be finally saved. But what I am saying is that there is a symmetry in the atonement with the curse or the fall of there, there, Christ's atonement has a, it has a certain symmetry with Adam's fall, if, if, if we can kind of speak that way. And I think that that, like I said, is just really clear in, in, in just reading Romans 5, 18 and 19. And there's more going on in Romans 5. There's more going on in Romans. And Romans is certainly not a document that leaves you with the belief that every individual person is saved without question. Like, that's we don't even really need to get into that because that's just patently not what's going on with Paul, right? <laughs> um, but I think that that's an important text because that symmetry, right? Moving a little bit, bouncing around, going to John 6, starting in verse 35. This is the bread of life discourse. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then skipping to verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You're touching on a lot of tulip there, it seemed like. I mean, <laughs> a lot of proof text for tulip, maybe. But, you know, you talked about... Um, uh, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up. So perseverance of the saints. Um, mm -hmm. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, irresistible grace. So it's interesting that yeah. in, in this text, it, there's even some of those other things that are a part of what we're talking about in a sense. Definitely. And, and, and the reason I wanted to read this passage is um, with like, certainly the like other, there's a lot going on here besides, what we want to say about the extent of the atonement. Um, um, but as it relates to limit to the doctrine of limited atonement, um, that, that last verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Right. I really want to highlight that because it's like, this just seems to scream limited atonement, right? Like that implies that the father needs to draw you. So there's like irresistible grace and election, all that kind of stuff. But the father needs to draw you, um, which, which means only those who the Father draws are going to come to him, right? I mean, yes, that's what it says. <laughs> um, but, and I, remember, that's John chapter 6, right? So John chapter 10, starting in verse 25. I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. Um, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And skipping ahead again. So we just, we see that again, the father giving, the father give, right? The father's giving the sheep. This, it, it sounds limited, right? It, it, it sounds like. The, or at least particular. Per, yeah. And, and again, I should have mentioned this earlier. Limited atonement, particular redemption. We mentioned those are synonyms for the same doctrine. Um, what I should have 
elaborated a little bit. Um, I don't have a preference for the term. I say limited atonement because I feel like it's the more common term. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's the L and tulip. It fits in the acronym, you know, like it, that's why I, mean, I just use it for convenience. Um, it's a, it's a limited people in the sense that it's the ones the father gives, it's the sheep. It's a particular people. It's the ones the father gives, it's the sheep. Um, same same thing. I, I, I really, I don't mean to, to use limited atonement instead of particular redemption for any sort of purpose intentionally. Um, um, so I'm glad you said that. It's a particular people. But what's interesting is when we go to John 12. So this is all in, in the book of John, the gospel of John. John 12, starting in uh, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So the same book where Jesus is saying only those drawn by the Father can come to him, Jesus is saying everyone from his death is going to be drawn to him, all people. The the atoning work of Christ, which is his death, is given an implication for all people. It doesn't just have implications for the elect. It doesn't just have implications for a particular people. It has an implication for all people. That implication being all people will be drawn to himself. Now, what does all people mean? Does it not mean all kinds of people? Does it not mean all um all groups of people, all people groups, like in the sense of, of nations or ethnicities or languages. Um, it seems to me that those are certainly like linguistic possibilities, but it seems to me, you know, before he talks about everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. Everyone that the father, uh, gives to him he will save right so it it seems to me reason like we don't want to say well the father's going to give him some people and you know all kinds of those people who are given to him will be saved well no everyone will be saved who the father gives to him so it's it seems it seems reasonable to me you know and and i'm not pretending that i'm i can't possibly be wrong (laughs) but i'm just saying in my in my reading and, and interpretation of of reading through john like it seems like when he says, I will draw all people to myself, he will draw all people to himself, right? It, it, it seems to be consistent with the language of everyone before that he's talking about the whole group. So everyone referring to the group of the sheep or the ones the father gives him. And here, all referring to people, you know, in, in the sense of, of all people. Um, and yeah, I just, I just, I, I mean, it, at the end, we this, have to like we, we have to acknowledge though that we are talking about John. We're, 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 we've only you've only mentioned scripture from the Gospel of John, and I think we at least have to acknowledge that there are no contradictions in scripture. It's not as though the Bible contains errors. Um, so in some way, we have to maybe reconcile, wrestle, figure out what is going on just linguistically right because we would not say that john is just like all over the map doesn't know what he's talking about but all scripture is god breathed um inspired um not you know they weren't overtaken as if like possessed and they didn't have any emotion or will involved 
Um, but the Spirit ensured that the scriptures contained no errors. Um, is it possible we've translated incorrectly? Certainly, because we are error-ridden. Um, but to me, like, yeah, I don't know. that this is, this is why I've had a hard time. And I think this is why other people historically have had a hard time and have had disagreements. Because it seems that scripture talks about both. That, like, Christ atones for the sins of the world. But at the same time, Jesus himself says, I came, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to die for the sheep. Um, so what what is going on? And I, I cannot claim to have any like definite solutions. Um, but at least in my mind, it seems like Christ died. Well, let me, I guess I, I had a thought here. Let me see if I can find it again. Um, the atoning work of Christ is sufficient for all. Christ died with the ability that if possible all could be saved um so that is its meritorious value is sufficient to cover the sins of all people i think that i mean it seems like that's what scripture teaches that like christ his death has a meritorious value and it is sufficient to cover the sins of all people and anyone who puts his or her trust in jesus um but only those who do reap the benefits i I don't know how else to like talk about it in a way that like squares with what scripture has taught um, because it's important to teach. And I think it's important to get this out there that we preach the gospel universally. We don't just like some people like hyper Calvinists and others have like had this idea that the elect is this like secret group of people. Only the elect ever had the possibility to be saved. So everybody else, they don't even stand a chance. They're just sort of like pawns in this game. Um, but no, we we preach the gospel. The gospel has the power to, to change the human heart. We don't know who the elect are. And when we speak of elect, again, we're not talking about a super secret covert group. We're talking about the church, the bride, the body. It's just another way that Paul and others talk about this group of people. Um, but it seems like, you know, kind of like with the argument we're making here, that Christ did, at least some passages seem to indicate that he died for the sins of the world, but not the whole world reaps the benefits, so to speak. And so I don't, I don't know how to square that or if I'm even, you know, maybe I'm misspeaking. Uh, maybe there's a different point to be made, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you are. And I think that that's a really helpful transition to the last verse I want to talk about today. The last thing that's kind of the, the cornerstone of, of my, you know, issue with limited atonement, particular redemption as a doctrine. You know, if, if it hasn't become clear, <laughs> I don't subscribe to the doctrine of, of, of limited atonement. I, I never really have. And the reasons for it, even more so than, than some of the other things I have issues with in the world, are really purely scriptural. You know, like, like I, I, I really just have a textual problem getting to the, the conclusion of, of particular redemption. And the the linchpin of my textual you know objections is first john 2 2 so i'll I'll read first john 2 1 and 2 my little children i'm writing you these things so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous one he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins some translations say uh, propitiation same thing he himself jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for those of the whole world. So the ours is John, 
writing to his, quote, little children. John is writing to believers. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, right? He's, he's encouraging them. He's giving them assurance of their salvation in the face of sin that they are to strive against. He's writing them so that they may not sin. But if anyone does sin, you know, the, the encouragement, the exhortation, the assurance is that we have an advocate Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is himself the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Now, what does world mean? Sometimes, a lot, you know, oftentimes in scripture and particularly in other writings of John, world has this connotation of like, the world in the sense of a little more abstractly, right? The, the fallen system, uh, 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 the sinful condition, right? That, that, that we are subject to the, um, you know, almost like when Paul talks about like the, the prince of this age, right? Like, like world in the sense of this current evil age that we live in, right? Um, world also means like the universe, you know, like, like all of creation. Um, and, and world also means world in, in, in the sense of like everything, the whole world, right? Um, we, we have sort of the same kind of uh, usages, I, I would say, pretty much in English today for how we use the word world, right? Like world at its core means what it means, but, but there are certain contexts where it's used differently, right? Um, that's, that's 100% true, absolutely legitimate. And you have to look at the context of any particular passage or, or, or quote or text of any language to understand how each of those words are being used in its context. I think here, I'm not compelled by arguments that what John is talking about here is not the whole world, right? A couple of reasons. First of all, he says whole world. So, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not just... It's an all-encompassing term. It's whole. It's, and thank you. World. All-encompassing. That's that's what I was looking for. It's 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 total. It's not only is it world, which in itself is a pretty far-ranging term, but it's the whole world. It's everything in the world, or, or we could say maybe everyone in the world. It, it's it's not a piece of the world. It's the whole world. It's the entire world, right? And um, also. If we're talking about like Satan's hold on the world in sin, like, okay, so Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and also all the sins of the evil structures of sin in the world. Like, I don't think that that makes sense conceptually or theologically that Jesus is somehow the atoning sacrifice for the condition of men under sin. Like he is, but... But he specifically says not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world, right? So it contextually, so yeah. I, it just seems to me like what John is talking about is the whole world in con- meaning contrasting with our, in, in this case, believers. So you've got, you've got a contrast or, or I guess a connection between these two groups. The two groups not being like Jew and Gentile or, you know, human and demonic or, or something like that but believers the church and unbelievers the world the not not the church um and i just 
I, I just don't see why, and, and again, I'm not claiming I, I'm not mistaken. I'm not claiming that there's no way I'm wrong, but I don't see how to make it work differently in a way that fits the, the, the text. Here. I mean, to, to play devil's advocate, and I, sure. as, as we've sat here, as we've, I've looked at the exact text, uh, I'm reminded, and we talked about this beforehand, but I'm reminded of something your friend Manny said um, on, on Twitter recently. Um, this could be not talking about saying our sins as, you know, this, as the people of God, but also the sins of the whole world. Um, because he's specifically talking about sin, talking about actual, like actual sinning, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father. So if you are sinning, if you're struggling, you have an advocate, you have the righteous one. He himself, Jesus, that, that guy over there is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Like he has died for these sins, for this, and not only for our sins, but like all sins, like maybe Again, and this is maybe like the reformed way to like work around the issue you're having here is maybe to say that our, not not only for our sins, but also for those of the whole world is to say, um, you know, it's, it's that inclusion again, like the, mm-hmm. um, the highest and the lowest, everything in between. So it's not just ours, but it's the sins yeah. of the whole world. So like Jesus died for sins. So it doesn't matter what sin you're suffering with or struggling with, doesn't mm-hmm. matter what has befallen you. Um, you have an advocate, Christ, who died for that sin. It, right. it may, maybe like that's that's a possible. I'm just saying it's it's sure. feasible that that could be the interpretation. It's not clear necessarily in the text that that it's one way or another. Um, mm. But just to give listeners a, a, an indication into like how people have squared these problems, right. because I I could just turn this back to you, Lucas, and be like, you know, those three texts that I read. Um, let's open up my deck again. Uh, so, you know, John 10, where he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say I lay down my life for all people. So right. how, how, do, how, how do, I'm not, I don't want your answer right now. Cause I think we just, you know, we could just go on all day, but like, how, how does someone wrestle with that? What, what, how do we take the passages that do seem to imitate, seem to in, indicate some sort of limitation? Um, and that's again, why I've continued to struggle. I, I continue to walk this line between like, I just don't know. I have a difficulty because of what you're saying. Like, I, I, I think your points that you're raising are entirely valid. If I was to read what you just read and not have known what Manny said the other day on Twitter, I probably would have been like, yeah, that's really difficult if I'm just reading it like you're saying. Um, but that's the difficulty. And this is, this, is, this is a whole nother conversation, Lucas, but this is the difficulty of Bible interpretation. This is the danger of me, Jesus, and my Bible, just going off into your closet and reading scripture on your own. There is a whole bunch of intention behind why something is written. There is a history behind interpretation, behind doctrine, behind belief. And to just just go and to read something at face value sometimes can be detrimental. To, To read something just on the surface might not be the correct way to read that simply because you don't understand the full picture, the full context, the full scope, the histo- the historicity. So this is why church tradition is important. This is why theological uh, construction, you know, for me, it's a more reformed tradition. For you, it's a different tradition. Um, but this is why this matters. This is why having conversations is important. This is why um, 
you know, not debates necessarily, but just hashing these things out, talking these things over, uh, meeting with your pastors, meeting with, you know, theology, uh, theology professors. Uh, I don't know. Now I'm just sort of like spitballing. But this is, I, th- I think this this episode in particular is evidence that this is a very complex doctrine. This idea of how Christ redeems, who he redeems, how that's accomplished, all of that isn't as simple as like yes or no or this or that. If it was, it wouldn't even be a debate anymore. I think that's really good. And to sort of to sort of wrap up because because we've raised especially you have raised some really good things to to think about that are not like you said as simple as as just I can just wash my hands of it and be done. It's so easy. I think it if we look at 1 John 2 2 in that light of well he's talking he's not talking about sinners he's talking about sins right he's not talking about people he's talking about um he's not talking about the totality of all people he's talking about the totality of all sins that have been committed i still i i still don't think that works with limited atonement because what we're saying and this is this is my you know i i knew where i was going so i didn't say anything but this is my answer to your question way a while ago of if Jesus died for all people and not all people are saved in the end, what happened in between, right? This is how to work through that, in my opinion. If if this text says this thing about Jesus died for all, but this text says that he only lays his life down for the sheep, well, lays his life down for the sheep, it doesn't say only, so to be fair, you know, whatever, but... Um, this is, I think, how to how to wrestle with those things and square them because they do whether or not I'm right, they do square because it's God's word. <laughs> so, like, even if we don't know how they square until the end, um, they do square, you know. But um, I do think I like I have answers that I've been compelled by, hmm. not because I think I'm the smartest person in the world and these are absolutely irrefutably true, but I have found them compelling and they make sense. Um, Jesus redeems the world. Jesus pays the price, heals the disease, undoes the curse for every sin that has ever been committed by any person ever. On an individual level, on a you know structural level, um, he, he, he died for every single sin that has been committed, not only for the group of people that John is writing to, but also for those of the whole world, right? Whether you read that as, the whole world of sin or the whole world of people who are sinners, right? Um, Just as everyone is condemned in Adam, everyone is justified in Christ. What does Paul mean by that? Christ is the justification for sinners. He is the resurrection for those who are dead. All sin has been redeemed. He is the once for all atoning sacrifice and propitiation to God the Father. And that doesn't just mean, it does mean this, but it doesn't just mean that he doesn't, he, he, his sacrifice doesn't need to be repeated like the sacrifice of, of the old covenant. That is true. That, that's, that's what Hebrews is talking about. Um, I think what Hebrews is also talking about is the extent of his sacrifice. Once for all, he was sacrificed once for all people, for all sinners, for all sins 
for all acts that have been committed against God, for all rebellion, for all time, right? One, he, he is the sacrifice, like John is saying in 1 John. Um, he is the source of justification in life for all those who stand condemned in Adam, which is all people, like literally every individual, according to common Christian confession. And that is what the atonement is. It's Christ making humanity atoned, cleansed, cleansed, redeemed, right? Will every person, like how, how do you, like you said earlier, uh, like take advantage of, or I forget the exact way you said it, like um, receive like the application. Take hold, of, uh, yeah, take hold of the benefits, take hold of the results. You need to be united to Christ, union to Christ through through. By grace, through faith, we are, we are baptized into Christ's death. We are, that's how we are saved, right? What are, we what are we saved by? We're not saved by us believing in Christ. We're saved by Christ, something he did 2,000 years ago for the world. He drew all people to himself because he paid, like, exactly what we've said before, his, sin, his payment is sufficient for all sins, but to be efficiently saved by that payment of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, you need to have faith. You need to be grafted into his body by virtue of baptism into that death which saves us, right? And not everybody experiences that because not everybody avails themselves of the offer of Christ's death. Christ is the one who, the Father through Christ by the power of the Spirit is the one who draws people into union with Christ, their old self is put to death, is, 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 is eliminated, and they are a new creation. And that is in Christ, period, end of story. It's not because of us. It's not through us. It's not by our own power. Um, and whosoever believes, that's what, they, that's what you, that's availing yourself of that salvation, right? And what happens in between the day of the resurrection and, and, and the crucifixion and, and the day of the Lord at the end times where we see everyone who is in glory and we are face to face with Christ. What happens in between is the, this is where, this is where, for, for me, this is where the mystery lies. The mystery doesn't lie in who Christ died for, which is kind of, you, you could say maybe where the mystery is located in limited atonement. Like, why are some chosen and not others? Why are some elect and not others? That is a mystery. But, but for me, when we're talking about who, who did Christ die for, the mystery is not there. He died for everyone. The mystery is, why do some people not believe? Hmm. And that's on us, and that's on, on God in the sense of God is the source of salvation, we are responsible moral, moral agents who choose to sin and, and rebel and reject God. And we, we did that in Adam, and we've continued to do that ever since. I, as a saved person, Simul used to set peccator, even though I'm saved, I continue to do that every day. I choose to reject God's will for me in, in ways I'm not even aware of. And that's why I need to constantly return to the mercy of Christ as my advocate, my because because he himself is my atoning sacrifice, right? And... This doesn't erase all the questions, you know, check all the boxes, we're good to go. 
this is a this is a profound mystery that that we don't get to unravel. And if we do, we're gonna do damage to the faith. If we unravel it, is... we unravel ourselves in a way. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No kidding. Uh, because this is the mind of God. I think you mentioned maybe right. it was this episode, maybe it was earlier. Like when we're we're, we're plumbing the depths of the eternal triune God, we're not gonna get it all. <laughs> And in humility, I every I might at some point in my life come to regret every word I've said. Today. <laughs> but I can I can assure you that in all honesty and 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 integrity, I'm not saying anything that I don't truly believe is the teaching of God's word. Right. I respect everyone who disagrees with me, and, and especially those who who are much more well informed and 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 thoughtful than I am who have thought through this and come to different conclusions um I am I am if I'm wrong I want to be proven wrong so I can be right you know what I mean because because I don't want to be right I want to be on I want to know the truth you know what I'm saying hmm. so all of that to say I think that's how I work through those those complications that you brought up those yeah. are those are real complications and the, the the solution that i see is that that's where the mystery is what happens in between is the mystery of why the the, the perennial question that we'll never know why are some people saved and some not but we wrestle with the fact that some are and some aren't but what we don't need to wrestle with is the fact that you know you random person on the street you listener who i don't know who i'm pointing to Christ died for you. He died for your sins. He is your atoning sacrifice and your advocate before the Father. Just, you know, dive in <laughs> to him. You know, get dunked if you haven't. You know, <laughs> join his body. Um, put your faith and your trust on Christ, the only mediator between God and man, the only savior of all mankind, the justification leading to life for all who believe. Because I, I can promise you that is true for you. And I think that, and I'm, you know, I think that that is how I wrestle through that. Um, and how I wrestle through those, those passages is he does lay down his life for, for the sheep because you're not saved by him laying down his life unless you're one of his sheep. And tragically i don't know why and i don't know how but there are some people who are not his sheep you know and there are some people who will not be his sheep and that's the greatest you know tragedy of of the cosmos <laughs> in all history yeah you know what i mean is that some people remain separated from him and on the basis of of the of the gospel i don't have a good explanation for how that's still the case but I know through the word of God and my experience, that is the case. And that's the mystery for me. And that's where I want to like rest in that Christ died for all the sins of the whole world, meaning every single person, their salvation is in Christ. That's true of every individual person, as well as every group of people. Their salvation is in Christ, guaranteed. However, you need to actually be in Christ <laughs> for that your salvation to be in Christ. You know to what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Of, to be to take hold rest, of that. You to need, be, you need yeah. to be united to the one who is your salvation in order to actually receive his salvation. Hmm. Um, no, that's good. And, and, and I, I really like yeah. that conclusion. I did, did you have more you wanted to say? No, no. I just want to say, like, again, that's how I, how I wrestle through these questions that, like you said, are so hard. 
and they're so complicated. And I have great respect, not for every Reformed Christian I've ever heard speak, but I have great <laughs> respect for for people who are who have totally different opinions than me on this subject, um, who have wrestled through the texts as I've tried to do, and I hope I've done faithfully and I've striven to do faithfully. Um, and, and I'm compelled by the answers I've given, um, but but I don't believe that everyone else who disagrees with me is stupid because I know myself too well to think that I <laughs> have all the answers. Right. So, um, But I have great joy and comfort in the explanations I've given as 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 what I see to be the teaching of of God's word hmm. um, worked out in 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 our life, um, and and yeah, I just I really appreciate this conversation and having it a second time. I do think I appreciate it even more. This was like way better. That's what um, I feel. Way I, I really appreciate you in terms of in your, the the effort that you put in preparing and and just being willing to have a conversation like this um, and just. I, I, I never feel like we fight. I feel like we discuss, you know, mm. we, we investigate and explore, you know, like all. Um, and, and I really do appreciate that. And I hope those listening have, have benefited from that, even if they're um, not persuaded by me or you, but, but just that to, to be a part of this conversation. Um, I do hope that I, I've, uh, that we've both been clear and, and, and charitable as we, as we always try to be. And, and I, I feel like we were so, um, just, just, yeah, that, that's, that's all I have, have to say is just on top of what I've said, just, just a big thank you to, to you and to everyone listening as well. And just remember, you're not saved by your select group of doctrines that you affirm. That is not the basis Amen. of your salvation. So Amen. all of us are wrong somewhere. All of us are going to have inconsistencies, have errors. Um, and so for me, this has been incredibly, uh, edif- incredibly edifying. It's been um, challenging. It'll continue to be challenging. But at the end of the day, regardless, preach the gospel. Like Amen. there are people in the world who are lost, people who are hurting, people that are suffering. And we choose to bicker on social media about the stupidest stuff. Like yeah. go out into your community. If you have to wear a mask, wear a mask and don't complain about it, whatever. But go <laughs> preach the gospel. And like, let's not <laughs> quarrel over. M- words i mean doesn't like paul or peter say that like it's a a vain thing to quarrel over the the meaning of words or whatever somewhere like Like that you know we there's there's a time and a place but at the end of the day preach the gospel because that's that's what is important and and people need to hear it and people will respond maybe not everybody but there are people who will so um, as we wrap up we will close with a prayer from the valley of vision uh i changed it up lucas it's not the same one as last time uh the infinite and the finite Thou great I am, fill my mind with elevation and grandeur at the thought of a being with whom one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. A mighty God who, amidst the lapse of worlds and the revolutions of empires, feels no variableness, but is glorious in immortality. May I rejoice that while men die, the Lord lives, that while all creatures are broken reeds, empty cisterns, fading flowers, withering grass. He is the rock of ages, the fountain of living waters. Turn my heart from vanity, from dissatisfactions, from uncertainties of the present state to an internal, uh, sorry, to an eternal interest in Christ. Let me remember that life is short and unforeseen and is only an opportunity for usefulness. Give me a holy 
avarice to redeem the time, to awake at every call to charity and piety, so that I may feed the hungry, clothe the naked, instruct the ignorant, reclaim the vicious, forgive the offender, diffuse the gospel, show neighborly love to all. Let me live a life of self-distrust, dependence on thyself, a life of mortification, crucifixion, and prayer. Amen. Amen. Well, well, this, like I said, has been a much better episode in my personal opinion. Uh, I'm glad this is the one that will go out into the into the world. So I want to thank you, Lucas, for being a, a good theologian, for being a good friend, for being a good communicator as well. Thank you, whoever you are, however many of you there are, for listening to this episode of our little doxology podcast. Our hope, as always, is that anything we talk about, it's not just for the sake of uh, gain, uh, gaining and um, gathering knowledge, but it's for doxology. It is for praise to the eternal God who has redeemed us, who has made a way to not go to the depths of Sheol, but to be redeemed, uh, to live uh, in, in heaven, in glory one day with our, our eternal, magnificent, beautiful Lord. So may this conversation, may any conversation lead to that praise, to that devotion. Uh, if you'd like to connect with us, hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Doxology Podcast, or you can email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. Please send us feedback. Maybe your pushback, uh, any questions you might have, send us your episode ideas. Uh, but really, we want you to engage. So come and find us. We'd love to hear from you. Peace. Peace.